how to use a systematic process to make better decisions in your life with the author of Choose Better, the Optimal Decision-Making Framework, Dr. Tim Yen, on episode number 158 of the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. But the big thing, if I were to boil it down, is some level of fear, right? Some, some level of fear, uh, anxiety around failure, about making the wrong choice and whatever devastating consequence that may lead. And so there is this illusion that if people don't choose at all, somehow they bypass the potential risk or pain that comes from making the wrong choice. Hi, this is Christine Meyer from thechristinemeyer.com, where I help people become beautiful, fearless, and free. You connected with the On Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, helping you to navigate adversity and discover your life victory. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. It is my pleasure to be with you and to be one of your guides to help you to navigate adverse conditions in your life, depression, divorce, disease, debt, even death, and to come out to a better place, a place of peace, prosperity, and purpose. We have over 150 episodes of talking to authors and leaders and and uh, doctors who have been able to speak into the process of helping you have systems to overcome adversity. You can find all of that at drbradmiller.com, and you can find my process, The 40-Day Way, there as well to help you to overcome adversity and achieve peace of mind. Today, we have one of those doctors with us, Dr. Timothy Yen from timyen.com, T-I-M, Y-E-N.com. He is a behavioral therapist, a psychologist from the San Francisco Bay Area, and his new book is Choose Better, the Optimal Decision-Making Framework. And in this book, he helps to give us an actual eight-point process to help you make better decisions in your life, to free up your anxiety, to help you to deal with the other factors in making decisions, such as other people and circumstances, and to make good decisions in a timely manner. You need this talk. You need this process in your life. If you ever feel like your best is not enough, or you have negative feelings in your life, or you feel a lot of stress about decision-making, there is hope. We bring it to you here today in this podcast because knowledge is power, And the application of that knowledge is what helps guides us into more clarity and skills, which saves us time and energy and money and heartache, because it's a collaborative process. Uh, Dr. Yen brings a wealth of experience and some really poignant personal stories to our conversation here today. You're going to love it. You're You're going to find it applicable to your life and for you to apply it. 
You can always go to drbradmiller.com. You got we got a free gift for you there, and lots of other episodes are which are going to speak into your life. But right now is Dr. Timothy Yen. He blogs at timyen.com. We're going to get into the, our conversation with Tim Yen, Dr. Tim Yen, right now. We've got Dr. Timothy Yen with us today. He uh, has uh, he is a clinical psychologist on, in the San Francisco Bay Area and has a practice of his own. And then, but he topic here today in our conversation today will be around making good decisions. His book is Choose Better: The Optimal Decision Making Framework. Dr. Tim Yen, welcome to Beyond Adversity. Thank you so much, Brad, for having me. Thank you for being on the on and Beyond Adversity today. I've been looking through your materials and your your book, Choose Better, is just is in real alignment with the the needs of folks who listen to Beyond Adversity, who are kind of seeking tips and tracks and advice or a pathway to get them beyond being stuck in whatever adverse conditions they end to find a way out. And you offer some advice, not only from your uh, medic- from your uh, clinical background, but also from your life. And I guess I'd like to, if you will, just unpack how you ended up going into clinical psychology in the first place, and maybe what was maybe some uh, event or adverse condition that you may have had to face in your life to get to where you're at now. All right, where do I start? So... Being a psychologist actually wasn't my original plan. There's a definitely a faith component to uh, your podcast. I am able to overtly say that there's definitely a divine kind of hand through my life story. Originally, I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. So it's kind of funny because now we're doing podcasts, which is kind of the next best thing, if you want to say sure. it that way. I guess the adversity that happened was my father was a businessman. His business did not do very well. Let's just say that. This was about the time that I was applying for college. There wasn't any money, I think, for me to go to college. For whatever reason, signing up for the military made sense to me at the time. I was like, hey, I want Uncle Sam to pay for my college tuition. I went to enlist and turns out you can't be a journalist in the army if you're colorblind. So that's a whole different story. But I find out I'm severely colorblind. The, the medical examination process, finding out, oh, the job that I wanted to go for is no longer available to me because of this handicap, if you want to call it that. And then there weren't that many choices left. Apparently, there's a lot of occupations in the military that need color vision. Who knew? So I was really left with some um, not so exciting prospects like petroleum engineer, some some very different from journalism type of work. One of the few jobs left over at the time of interest was mental health. So that's kind of what got my journey started was mental health was the only thing I was interested with what was left over. And there wasn't even a position open for me at the time. And I essentially somewhat low key threatened the recruiter and said, hey, if you don't give me the mental health position, then I quit, right? I'm not going to enlist. And of course, the recruiter trying to make his quota, I'm sure he's like, no, no, no. Like you've gone through 99% of the process. I am not losing you. All right, I'm going to call Washington, D.C. We're, we're going to make this happen. Yeah. And that's how I became a mental health specialist in the yeah. military. Fast forward many years, it was something that I found really meaningful. And I decided to pursue my graduate degree, so I can be equipped to help as many people as I can. Well, that is awesome. And so you pushed through this barrier that was there in the entering the military, 
prior to that with whatever the situation was at home regarding the business uh, not working out so well with your with your father. And so you made some progress and pushed through and then you emerge now and you have your own your own practice, I take it, and you you went to uh, college and got your clinical training and degree in, in psychology, and and here you are. You've pushed through those things. So tell me a little bit now about what in this whole process and what then motivated you about this whole area of decision making. You know, the title of your book is "Choosing Choose Better: The Optimal Decision Making yeah. Framework." Uh, so you had to make some decisions yourself and now you're helping others. What, what led you to, to want to write this book here, Tim? Yeah. So the, the long story short, I, I met with a, a friend who is a high exec, a CEO actually, or VP of a tech company uh, in Taiwan. And we had dinner and I asked her the question, Hey, as a consultant, cause I do some consulting work, executive coaching type work. So I asked her, Hey, like, what can I bring to the table to really help your company? So the idea actually came from her. She said, help my people think better, right? Like critical thinking skills, because there's so much pressure, deadline, multiple professionals, specialties that have conflicting self-interest in terms of how things should go. So she asked me, is there a way that you can help my people think better, choose better? And so that got my my wheels turning as to what I can do to support her. And then I thought back on my clinical work, thought back on all the the clients that I work with, and it really kind of boiled down to decision-making. How do people make decisions depending on where they end up? It's usually a chain of decisions for, for better or for worse. And so I just really contemplated on what's been working with my work with clients, and it really boiled down to some of these major pillars of decision-making. So if the emphasis was, and your the question posed to you was, help my company, help my people, help myself think better to make better decisions. So that meant the question was, or the problem was that they were not thinking, there was lack of clarity or lack of decision-making and somehow being stuck with the, would be the terminology I might use. So this is an issue then in the corporate world. It's also uh, is what I'm taking you, you found out. And in, if you're dealing with clients in psychology, you find that people are stuck in their own personal lives and whatever situation is a divorce or health related issue yes. or depression or, you know, being in debt or whatever it is, they get stuck. So what are you finding out there? What keeps, here's my question for you. If this, uh, if this Freddie horse had came to you, what keeps people stuck, whether it's in a corporate thing where the bottom line is, you know, uh, being corporately uh, successful financially or in people's personal lives? What type of things keep people stuck? So many things. But the big thing, if, if I were to boil it down, is some level of fear, right? Some, some level of fear, uh, anxiety around failure, about making the wrong choice and whatever devastating consequence that may lead. And so there is this illusion that if people don't choose at all, somehow they bypass the potential risk or pain that comes from making the wrong choice. Mm -hmm. We live in a society where I would say for better, but sometimes for worse, we have so much access to knowledge. I mean, at our fingertips, you just Google something, you can learn about so many different things and you realize there's just so much 
options out there. And that somewhat perpetuates the fear that maybe if I choose this, that may not be the best choice for me. So it does get convoluted in our uh, decision-making process because people are trying to sift through a lot of pieces of information. And the framework that I offer in my book is focus on the right pieces of information as opposed to just drinking from a fire hydrant and having tons of information and not really knowing how to sort through that. You hit on a real key thing there, I think, uh, uh, Tim, which is focus on the right information because avoidance, distraction, uh, denial, they are a huge part of our of our social uh, framework right now, aren't they? They're just part of what goes on. There's so much deluge of everything else that sometimes people get stuck in that uh, distraction and, and avoidance. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And and I would also say being stuck is one posture, but for some people, they go the other direction, which is they don't thoroughly think through their decision and they just impulsively on a whim, on a, some sort of emotion or just on one piece of information, they make a decision that also becomes regrettable. Yeah. A reaction to whatever the current stimuli is, they just kind of react to the stimuli that is there. So, so what do you think uh, using your book as a frame, you're talking about a framework of how to make decisions here. What are some of these things that do, you know, the actions, the bold actions or whatever it is that people take that you teach then like your friend in Taiwan or others, how do you teach, uh, what are some of the first steps to take to get this focus, this flow that you can kind of narrow down the scope of what you need to, to do to make some progress? So with my background in clinical psychology, we, we cannot escape the topic of emotions. So that's actually the first piece of the equation is understanding how you feel about this adversity, what, what kind of feelings come up, but to take it one step deeper, which is what are my emotions trying to tell me? What, what, what is the function behind this emotion? Uh, one example I use a lot is anger. Like when we feel angry, oftentimes people are like, oh, I just don't want to feel this way, or um, I just need the anger to go away. But in fact, our emotions are our friends, as I would like to say, because our emotions are trying to tell us something really important. Because if we didn't care about something that we were dealing with, you probably wouldn't feel much of anything at all, right? So emotions is the first thing that I have people listen to and be aware of because it hits your brain at about one-tenth of a second. It, it, it hits you so fast, we are best not to ignore our emotions. And so whatever adversity that they may be facing, there's going to be certain kind of emotions. It could be fear, anxiety, anger, sadness, whatever the emotion may be. That's probably the first clue is understanding what those emotions are trying to tell me. It gives you some really important data points. Do you have give people any direction or any guides on how to identify and properly to, um, understand the emotion at hand because some people you know have an angry emotion they want to lash out and so on uh yeah uh, uh, react and maybe in a, in a destructive way but uh give us some sensibility about how to identify and properly understand the emotions so we can do something constructive with them yeah so first and foremost we need to understand what each emotion means 
And, and that's something that most people don't teach. We just feel a lot of different things, but there's always a function behind the feeling. And so I draw from Dr. Paul Ekman's work. He's like the guru of emotions. And each emotion, he, he, he discovered, I want to say seven universal emotions, like across culture that we experience as human beings. And each one actually serves a purpose. And when you understand the purpose of that emotion, then you begin asking the right questions. For example, anger. Anger is an emotion that comes up for us when we feel like something is unfair or unjust, right? It's actually a justice emotion. We get angry when we feel like, hey, something's not right and it should not be this way. Now, if you know that that's what anger is triggering, then you start asking the question, what about this situation do I feel is unjust? And that starts giving you language real quick to understanding what is the problem for me, right? I'm not saying that it's objectively true. Like the person that is arguing with you may not see that as the injustice, but at least you can have some language around why you're feeling the way that you do. Mm -hmm. And my book kind of breaks it down a little bit, each emotion and kind of what each of them mean for common speak. So mm -hmm. people can begin to understand what this is all about. And if you have some identifiers, it helps you to uh, understand better the emotions so you can relate to them personally and how you relate to those interpersonally. Okay, great. That's right. But Tim, let's, we're, what we're talking about here, if we're talking about a process of change to decide to cut off from whatever one factor or one track is in your life to a different one, then we're talking about life change. We're talking about transformation. And I want to talk to you about a spiritual element for a second. I know there's a faith-based element in what you teach here and what you're about. What do you think about, uh, how do you integrate uh, some sort of a spiritual power or a source greater than yourself that would come into play into your process of decision-making? Tell us a little bit about power, spirituality, anything along that line. Yes. So if you have some sort of uh, spirituality or, or faith-based higher power, as you mentioned, in that there are certain values that the higher power, God, if you want to call it, call him or her that, right, is is central to part of your decision making. Uh, if we're going to use, let's say, a, a Christian point of view, right, then we, we know that there are certain inherent values that God bears, right, in, in his word, in, in the lives of, of his people. So, so one of them could be as simple as our worth, right? Like, like where does our worth come from? If we're going to get a little bit theological, right, then, then people's worth, right, is, is central on the fact that the person or, or the being who is uh, the creator of all things, God is able to define worth because he's the one who creates all things. So from God's standpoint, people are intrinsically worthy and valuable simply because God says so. That's it. If we take that value that people, myself, the people that I interact with are intrinsically valuable, then what does that mean? Then there's kind of a shift that happens because then our worth is not found in performance or how we do things, uh, our net worth, right? A lot of the things that the world measures worth in people it shifts because now we're saying hey we're starting from a place of intrinsic worth then the, the the way that we go about doing things is kind of an overflow of who we are 
rather than trying to prove something to someone else that we are worthy or valuable of their time. And so, so these are the values, which is part of the framework that I've developed is really understanding what are the values? What are the things that truly matter to you that make life meaningful? When you have a higher power, it redefines our values. And that in turn uh, redirects or realigns the way that we make decisions. Your values have to come from somewhere, in my opinion. They, you know, it is, yes. it, they, your values, either maybe it comes from how you are raised and your moral uh, values and your, your uh, nuclear family that you grew up in, or maybe they are somehow an educational element or, or something to do with something maybe you read or you were influenced by some teacher. Those are all powerful uh, elements there. But what you're saying is the values have to be intrinsically a part of us. And one place, uh, and I believe it's a very important place to draw upon that power, is from the spiritual development piece that comes into play here. And it's hard just That's to right. come, it's hard just to come to that place uh, of your own accord, I believe. You have to come to it by uh, a different place that comes into your life. And that's, uh, you mentioned the Christian worldview and there's others as well, but uh, we can talk about, you know, drawing on a higher power to help this decision-making process to give you those values. Otherwise you're just floundering, you know, you're just kind of just floundering there. Let's go, let's go back into the emotions again here for just a minute here, uh, Tim, I've, you spoke about, you know, kind of the emotions that you have to identify anger and such. Let's talk about the importance in decision-making of other people or emotional or loving or caring relationships and how the power that they bring into your life. And sometimes uh, the emotion of, a, of a, someone who cares for you can, you know, be a, uh, a, 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 a boundary on us or some sort, but also that sometimes they can be freeing. I'd like you to talk about the power or the importance of loving relationships in this decision-making process, good, bad, or otherwise. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, my, my hope is it's mutual. <laughs> the, the, the loving relationship is mutual. You love them. They love you. And, and, and kind of from that context, when, when we talk about values, again, the, the reality is we don't live in isolation or in a vacuum, mm -hmm. we live with other people. And so when we do make decisions, we, we don't want to be completely selfish in making a decision that only benefits me or benefits myself. But we do want to ask those questions about what do other people value in this situation? And I, I believe that's the loving thing to do. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as uh, you would like it to be done to you. But then I've been uh, told that there is a platinum rule, which is above the golden rule, which is uh, do unto others as they would like things to be done. And, and that kind of turns the idea around a little bit because uh, the example I, I use is uh, my dad really likes spicy food which is true. And I don't particularly like spicy food, but imagine that my dad just really insisted on cooking Chinese food and serving it to me. I mean, after all, he loves it, right? Like that, that's his jam. He loves spicy food. 
But I, I don't know if I would receive that as very loving, right? Because I don't value that. Like I don't, in fact, I really don't like spicy food. So that would be kind of uh, offensive almost, right? After I've communicated, hey, dad, like this isn't yeah. really my type of food, right? So I was going to say the, the that piece of that is what you just said, the communication piece. You have to be loving enough to say to dad, dad, yes, don't do that. Because if he doesn't know that, then he thinks it's a loving act to cook up spicy uh, food for you. So this communication exactly. communication comes into play here in regarding mm. this loving relationship and our decision-making, doesn't it? It does. And in a weird way, it's uh, it's kind of shame on you if you don't communicate <laughs> because people aren't psychic, right? People can't read your mind. Now, if someone has a very like rigid worldview or preference and they keep pushing it on you, even though you have communicated to them that, hey, that's not very loving. I don't want to receive that as loving. Then that's when the boundaries come in. And we say, hey, look, I know your intentions may be good, but after communicating to you that that's not something I appreciate, you still insist on doing it, then I'm afraid we cannot interact in this kind of way Mm -hmm. until you're able to respect my wishes. So, so yes, all, all that to say, right, the values of others is very important to understand in order to be in a loving relationship. And yet, if we're going to make optimal, excuse me, optimal decision making, it is very important to make it not in a vacuum, not on your own. You need to make it somehow in relationship with others. I know you as a psychologist, uh, people often will, you know, ask you to be that other voice to speak into their life to help them make a decision. And sometimes if you're making a decision regarding any life-changing event, marriage, divorce, going off to college, going to grad school, whether to have surgery or not, you it is important to bring into play the advice, sometimes the consent, uh, sometimes just the, the reaction reflection of other people who care about you. Say some yes. more about that. Yes. The, the key word is consider. Right. I think it's important to at least consider what the people who love you think about your decision and, and, and having a checkpoint, having some level of, uh, again, consideration for what they may think or feel. Now, it, it again goes back to uh, your own values again and seeing, hey, what matters to me may or may not align with what matters to other people. So that's where the, the critical thinking comes into play. Like how important really is it to make this decision after considering the fact that maybe the people who love you have a differing opinion? My hope is we have an open mind and open heart to consider what they have to say because they do love you, right? And, and they have uh, your best interests in mind, hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they don't, for whatever reason, that's just another piece of the puzzle to consider. Yeah. But at least love them enough to listen and consider what they have to say. But ultimately it is your decision and you have to live with that, you know, the accolades or the consequences of that. So let's talk for a minute about the actual process, the cognitive application of your process here, Uh, because it is a, when you say a framework, Uh, In your book, you say it's a framework. That means that there is a process here. There is things that you can do, you know, A, B, C, D, whatever it is. I'd like to tell us more about that in terms of what are the 
What is the actual framework? What is the process? What are the disciplines? What are the habits? What are the change of behaviors that you advocate here that people do in order to make, uh, as you say, to choose better, to make good decisions? So the framework, if you want to use an analogy, it's similar to what pilots use before they take off on their plane. And if you think about it, pilots are pretty smart people, I would say, to, to become a pilot. And there are sometimes hundreds of people, their lives are in this pilot's hands, depending on sure. if he lands the plane well or not. And for, for someone as smart as a pilot, they have a checklist of things that they review. It's almost like a protocol to make sure that everything is as it should be. The brakes work, the, the lights work, the, 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 the cockpit control panel works. Like there's, a, there's literally a checklist of things that mm-hmm. seem like no-brainers, right? They're like no-brainer things that if you've been doing it for 20 years, you would kind of know, but they are required to go through this checklist anyways because they, don't, they can't afford to make a mistake, with this, with the safety protocol, if if a pilot uses a checklist to make sure that they have their co- bases covered, why don't we do that for the important decisions in our lives? Why why do we leave it up to chance, right? Or why do we leave it up to just kind of how we feel? So that's really framework is a protocol, a checklist of sorts for people to go through before they arrive at their optimal decision. So let me review quickly kind of what that framework looks like. And we actually reviewed three of the four just in our conversation. Naturally, we actually hit three of the four boxes. Okay. Box number one is your emotions. So the question you ask yourself before you make any decision is uh, what feelings are coming up for me and what do they mean, right? What, What are they trying to tell me? Second part of the framework, right, is values of self. So understanding, okay, in this situation, what truly matters to me? What, what kind of values, character traits that do I really want to exercise or exemplify? Making sure that that's part of my decision. Pillar number three, right, is values of others. So the people that are involved in my decision, what do they care about? I want to consider what they care about. And hopefully my decision is a win-win proposition, right? That we both come up on top. Right, as much as possible, right? That's the third pillar. The fourth one is what I call reality factors. So there's certain things in our decision making that is not up for discussion. They they just exist in our world. Uh, things like the sun will come up at a certain hour, the sun will set at a certain hour, right? Um, my salary is fixed at this number, and how do I make a decision regarding those reality factors? Uh, Sometimes I use the example of gravity, right? Like you don't have to like gravity, understand gravity, but a gravity will still affect your life, regardless of what you think or feel about it. So that's what I call a reality factor or factors. And And so last year, we all had this crazy COVID crisis, which was the reality, which descended on all of us that we had to, a new reality we had to deal with. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just think that, you know, that, your reality doesn't always stay static is what I'm trying to say. That's right. It's not always up to you, right? (laughs) What reality factors are at play. And so when we consider these four things and kind of asking that question and kind of jotting down some ideas as to what is part of my situation, then we're, we're just more equipped to come up with a few options, 
right? Okay, now that I know these things, uh, what are my choices? Good, bad, the ugly? Like, what are my choices? What are some of the potential consequences? And when we go through this framework, we just have a new sense of confidence that we did our due diligence before we made a decision. And for a lot of people, especially those who are more reactionary, more impulsive, just the fact that they slowed down to work through the framework, they already beat 80% of the odds of making a bad decision. Just the fact that they sat down and thought through, okay, what is it that I really want to do? And, and why do I want to do this? Uh, that, that's a huge victory for, for yeah. those who make decisions on a whim. So yeah, well that, that's, that's the framework. Yeah in, yeah. in a nutshell. Let's talk about application of it for a second. What I mean by that is if that's the framework, tell us about, I'd like to hear a, a good news story about how the app, your process has been applied to somebody's life and something has happened that has helped transform them from being stuck to make a decision that's led them to a better place. I actually, when I was in the process of writing the book, I decided to use the framework directly with a client just to see how the client would respond and would it help, in this case, her work through this dilemma. So I'll, I'll share her story and, and kind of how we use the framework. Sure. So uh, let's, let's give you some context. Uh, she is a, a single mom of a few children, but most of them are grown. So she, she takes care of her 16-year-old daughter and she came across a dilemma where her other daughter, who's probably in her, her mid-20s, uh, was wanting to come back home to visit her, uh, visit the 16-year-old the daughter. Uh, but the problem was uh, the, the older daughter is in the adult industry, if you want to call it that. And you know, there's some concerns about that influence of her lifestyle on the 16-year-old daughter. Now, my client, the single mom, she... She wants the daughters to have a relationship or their sisters, right? Sisters have a relationship, but her ex-husband doesn't, right? Her ex-husband's like, I don't agree with her lifestyle. She's a bad influence. I don't think she should come over. What do you do, right? What, what, what does this mom do in this situation? So there you go. That's the situation. Let's use the framework to help this mom along in coming up with a decision that works for her. So Oh, and, and that was the other thing. The daughter, the, the little sister, I guess, also wants to see her older sister as well. But it's almost like this, mom, don't tell dad <laughs> if she comes. Like, you know, it's a really kind of There's a lot of layers of this, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just use that as an example. So, so I come in and I'm like, all right, do you want to try out this framework? Right? Let, let, let's see if we can use the framework to help you choose better. She's like, shoot. Yeah, I'm stuck. I don't know what I should be doing. Let's use the framework. So I asked her, so let, let's start with the feelings. Like what kind of feelings come up for you about this situation? And so what she told me was the first one definitely was fear. <laughs> Some level of anxiety because her ex-husband's abusive. So she did not want to trigger that kind of situation. So she said, I definitely feel fear that I'll get caught if I were to let my daughters reunite. Uh, I feel angry that I'm put in this position in the first place. Like, I don't know why I'm stuck in the middle having to make this call. So I'm, I'm pretty mad at the fact that I'm feeling this way. And she's like, and I, and I feel kind of sad, actually, that there's this wedge, this kind of barrier between my two daughters. I, I want them to have a relationship. I was like, okay, cool. So you kind of understand the feelings. And I was like, all right, let's, 
And, and we kind of know why, right? Why she feels this way. Now we move to the next sector. I was like, well, what, what values are in place? Like what, what matters to you about the situation? And as you can probably tell already, she wants the, the sisters to have a relationship, right? So she goes, if you were to ask me, I want, like what I care about is my, my family has a healthy relationship with each other, regardless of what kind of lifestyle she, she chooses to live in. It should not take away from my daughters having a relationship. And so, so that was really clear in her mind. She goes, that, that's really important to me. Um, yes, I don't want the consequences of what my ex-husband may do. But if we're talking about what I value, that's what I value. Sure, on some level, she values being non-confrontational, not having conflict. She has some level of value about that. But when she were to rank the values, she's like, yeah, having my daughters have a relationship is more important to me. Great. All right. Part three, values of others. What do other people care about in this situation? Well, I know where my two daughters stand. They both want, they both value the relationship. So that's pretty clear. And then my ex-husband, clearly what he values is some sort of bad influence that would happen. And therefore he does not want them to be together. Okay. Noted, right? Those are things that are in play. Reality factors. Some reality factors are they, that the sisters have not seen each other for several years at, at this point. Uh, so that, that's part of the equation. So it's really rare. It's really rare for, for the daughter to come home. Another reality factor is that uh, based on history, at least the husband, the ex-husband's going to get really mad, probably verbally abusive, all these types of things. Like, yeah, that's, that's probably part of the equation. And so, so those are just a few things, right? Uh, I don't know. Other reality factors is like, where would they stay? Well, her house is big enough. So that's, that's good. She has a room to stay. That's fine. The older sister's not going to stay that long. It's, it's just going to be for for a week at most, maybe a weekend. Okay. So then I was like, all right, now that we've gathered all these data points, all these things that we want to consider, what are your options? Right? She's like, well, one option is where I was feeling stuck at is I let my daughters hang out, but then I have to keep a secret, but I'm actually not okay with that because I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I don't know why I have to keep this thing a secret. So she goes, well, that is one option, but I don't feel good about that. She's like, I could have them just not see each other and there's no conflict at all. But then it kind of breaks my younger daughter's heart and, and my older daughter's heart as well. And I don't feel good about that either. It kind of goes against my own values. And then, of course, the third one is I do have them come together and I let my ex-husband know just right out the gates. Hey, I have my daughter on my week. I can choose what I want to do with, okay. with them. And, of course, there's some fear, some anxiety about, about making that decision, but what was crazy about the whole process is as she went through the framework, there was a newfound confidence because she knew this is what truly mattered to her. Mm-hmm. And as a mom, she wanted to protect her daughter and she wanted to live a life of integrity. So that was probably another value that came sure. up in our conversation. She's like, I don't want to have to lie about any of this. So fast forward, that's exactly what she did. And the consequences were not nearly as devastating as she thought she would. I think the ex-husband huffed and puffed and wasn't happy about it. But the fact that she was so, I guess, deliberate in making this decision, which is not like her, by the way. She's normally very kind of wishy-washy, right. avoidant, right? But that was came, the best decision for her. Came out to better. It goes back to the fear thing we talked about kind of originally, in my opinion, that, uh, you know, once you face the fear, the, the, the anxiety of the indecision 
can tear you up just as much as whatever facing whatever the consequences of the decision are, even if in this instance, say the ex-husband went off, that still might have been even be- still better than this whole thing lingering on forever. So, so well, exactly. well, well done. Well done in terms of uh, say, seeing some practical application. And I could just see how this process can be helpful for people who have, uh, have had adversity in their life and they need to find some way to channel that and to come out to a better place. So how, how can people find out more about you, about your framework, about your book and about your work? And just, just tell us, uh, uh, Tim, about how people can be in contact with you, learn more about what you're about and get your book. Definitely. So they can uh, go on my professional website, which is just my name, uh, www.timyen.com. And I have a link there where you can purchase the book on Amazon. And of course you can just go on Amazon and, and type choose better and you can buy yourself a copy, which will give you a lot more uh, details as to how you can implement the framework into your own life. Again, I also do coaching and, and, and run workshops, that sort of thing. So I can help companies with decision-making if that's something of interest, either as an individual to be coached or uh, some, some help with companies or teams they can also shoot me a contact on my website. Again, it's timyen.com. And then on the bottom, I have a bunch of social media links that you can follow me in the work that I do, you know, on Instagram, which is choose better consulting. That's the handle. A few other yeah. outlets that, well, I've been, that I use. Been on your side, there's lots of helpful, helpful resources there. And you've been helpful to our audience here uh, today, uh, Tim. And we appreciate you uh, being our guest. Again, the book is Choose Better. The Optimal Decision-Making Framework. He blogs at timyen.com. Our guest today on Beyond Adversity, Dr. Timothy Yen. Thanks for being our guest today. Wow, that was a great conversation. That was a great learning conversation for me. I hope it was for you. I know it was for you. Because Dr. Tim Yen... He blogs at timyen.com, T-I-M-Y-E-N.com, is giving us now a process. He calls it a framework for decision-making. And when, he, when you have this and you apply it, as he gives some great examples of how to apply that, yeah, you're going to have at least three things, at least three takeaways that I saw in our conversation here today. And, then, and that is this process, if you apply it to your decision-making circumstances will, number one, help you to relieve anxiety. This gives you a process to follow, and that will relieve some stress right there. Number two, it's going to save you some time. How much time do you spend worrying about the decisions that you make? This is all about an optimal decision-making process. So part of being optimal is to do it in a timely manner. Follow the steps. It's going to be helpful. And the third thing it does, it's going to help you make better decisions because your decisions are going to be informed by several different factors that Dr. Tim outlines. Great stuff there. It's going to be helpful to your life. Follow him at timyen.com. Our pod, our, uh, the podcast website that we have for you is at drbradmiller.com. We have over 150 episodes of the podcast there all speaking to this question of helping you to navigate adverse conditions in your life, things like depression, divorce, disease, debt, and death of a family member, and applying our action process. 
the Axe plan is the A in action is to have an action bias, take action. The C in the word action is to connect with a higher power. That's the spiritual element. The T in the word action is to think with discipline. That's the cognitive piece. And the S is to serve others with love. That's the emotive piece, the emotional piece. You can do this. We can help. My name is Dr. Brad Miller, and I'm here to be helpful to you. So go to our website, drbradmiller.com, and we have a free gift for you there. And please uh, also subscribe and rate uh, our podcast on on uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts and other other places as well. We're here to be servants to you. Our role, our process, is to help you to navigate adversity, to achieve peace, prosperity, and purpose. But all starts with another thing with the letter P. That's a promise. A promise to yourself that you can and will change. That's where it starts. So there's power in a promise, but there's even much more power in a promise kept. So I encourage you to make a promise and keep a promise. So until next time, friends, this is Dr. Brad Miller. When we meet again on the Beyond Adversity podcast, I want to encourage you to continue to do all the good that you can.